everybody. So we've talked a lot about selling real property. We've talked about the purchase contract. We've talked about closing. We've talked about title insurance. I believe the last thing we need to talk about is financing real property. There's a lot that goes into this as well. This is going to be another long episode uh, just because there's a lot of headings and a lot of subheadings relating to financing real property and what happens if financing is not done properly, meaning if you end up needing to foreclose. So here's what we're going to focus on. We're going to talk about the obligation. We're going to talk about providing a security. We're going to talk about foreclosing on the security and rights that both the borrower and the lender have after foreclosing. Okay, that's going to be a lot of information. I expect this to take us, we'll gather around 20 minutes, and I'll just work through my notes, talk about mortgages. It was a fun topic, um, but we did spend a lot of time, I think we spent two class periods talking about financing. So nearly all homes are financed when they are purchased. That makes sense. Most people don't have the money to put $200,000 to $2 million on a home. And so we're going to talk about how this works. First, the borrower is going to create an obligation, uh, such as drafting a promissory note to repay the loan. Then the borrower is going to provide security, and this is going to be a mortgage or a deed of trust, which places an encumbrance on the property, and that encumbrance is treated, that mortgage is treated as collateral if the borrower fails to pay. Third, the lender is going to have the right to foreclose on the property through the security, through the mortgage, and that's going to be to collect proceeds from any default that occurs. And finally, as I mentioned, we'll talk about certain rights that each have. So let's go ahead and start by talking about creating the obligation. A borrower promises to pay back a loan, and so as a result, they're going to oblige themselves, they've made obligated themselves to actually paying it back. So the formal writing of an obligation is actually done through a promissory note. There's certain parts that need to be included in that. There's certain clauses that are included. I won't get into all that detail. You can go ahead and look at uh, my related articles to actually get into some more of those details. There is one clause I do want to talk about, and that's going to be the difference between an assuming and a taking subject to clause. Uh, When a subsequent buyer is going to assume the loan, then they adopt the remainder of the loan from the original mortgager, and then they are going to be subject to any enforcement. So if the person who assumes it fails to make payments, the previous borrower can sue for any damages because that's who's going to be sued for you failing to make payments. But if the new buyer takes the property subject to the loan, they will not personally be liable for any defaults, but the original purchaser would be liable. So let's talk about providing the security. There are four types of security. We'll go through each of them. There's a mortgage, there's a deed of trust, there's an installment land contract, and then there's an equitable mortgage. Let's focus on the mortgages. A mortgage is the traditional way. Obviously, you hear tons of people talking about a mortgage on their homes. Even kids oftentimes at least know of a mortgage. Uh, quite often their parents' homes are mortgages. This is the main way to provide security. Uh, And 
ultimately what it means is that the borrower promises to pay back the loan. And if the borrower promises to pay back the loan, then the lender has the right to take possession of the property, foreclose, and use the proceeds to cover the loss that they're sustained. That's everything that the mortgage is saying. Mortgages are going to be considered encumbrances on the property, meaning an unmarketable title that ultimately will need to be paid back to make a good, clean title. So there are three main loan theories. Uh, Ultimately, it's related to title, who owns title while the mortgage is ongoing. Uh, So the first theory is the title theory, and that's that the lender has title and any rights to possession at any time of the loan. Uh, This is a theory that is not utilized as much. Uh, The second is the intermediate theory, which is where the lender maintains title but does not have the right to possession until the buyer actually defaults on the loan. And then the final theory is the lien theory, and that's that the borrower maintains title and possession until default. Uh, Here in Iowa, Iowa is a lien theory jurisdiction. Ultimately, that just means if the buyer defaults, then the... Uh, lender would end up taking possession of the mortgage. Otherwise, the borrower maintains both title and possession. So that's the mortgage. Uh, The typical mortgage is called, I believe, the money mortgage, money money purchase mortgage, something like that. We'll talk about that later because that's going to be an issue when it comes to priority of who gets to collect mortgages first if there are multiple mortgages on a home. But let's go ahead and move into deed of trust. So a deed of a trust, deed of trust is pretty much the same thing as a mortgage. It was a workaround originally to where you would have a third party act as a trustee. And the whole point of that was to say, we're selling the property. Uh, and it was a way to try and keep the courts out of treating this as a mortgage to remove some of the rights to the borrowers. So how's this work? Well, it's a mortgage with the third party attached. Uh, there's a truster who is the borrowers, and then through the trust of the third party who is the trustee, they are to protect the home for the beneficiary who is the lender. But big takeaway from there, courts pretty much rejected that argument. A deed of trust is essentially the same thing as a mortgage, except you have a third person attached to it. An installment land contract is another way that you can provide a security. And a good way of saying installment land contract layman's terms is just rent to buy, where you promise to make installation payments for an extended period of time until you've paid the cost of the property and then you take ownership of that property. If the borrower is going to miss a payment, then the lender has the right to reclaim the property at any time. So we have here uh, Sloan versus Calhoun. Calhoun. Our big takeaway from this is that installment land contracts, no different than a money purchase mortgage. That's your standard mortgage. Finally, we have equitable mortgages. Our case here was uh, Zayman versus Felton. And what they were trying to do is sell their home to avoid foreclosure. So what are the factual uh, situation that was in the case here? Felton 
was in financial distress. She didn't want her home to be sold. And so she sold her home to Zayman for $200,000 and with the option to buy it back for $237,000 within a certain amount of time, as long as she can maintain possession of the property. So ultimately, it's getting an additional loan off of the mortgage. You're selling, you're promising to pay back extra uh, to get it back. So Felton, in this case, sees the transaction as a loan, as an equitable mortgage, and Zayman sees this transaction as a sell. So what is it? Well, there are eight factors that the court's going to consider to determine if this is an equitable mortgage or a sell. If it's an equitable mortgage, the parties are entitled to the rights of a mortgage instead of uh, how a sell would normally go. So the factors that the courts are going to consider are statements regarding the retention of ownership. The price received is going to be much less than the actual value of the home. The existence of an option to repurchase, uh, the continued possession of the homeowner, uh, whether the homeowner continues to keep ownership duties, such as paying property taxes, maintenance, things like that. Uh, if there's a disparity in bargaining power and sophistication between uh, the two parties, if there's an irregular purchase process, and finally, the financial distress of the homeowner, including the imminence of a foreclosure. This case, Felton w meets enough of these factors and to find that this is an equitable mortgage, not the selling of a property. If you do a little bit of math too, uh, the option to buy it back for 237 within a specific amount of time is a huge interest rate on the loan. I think it was six months. So $37,000 in six months, that's a huge interest rate on the loan. Most jurisdictions actually don't allow that kind of interest rate. So if that's the case, this is actually a invalid agreement that was made between the parties. Okay, so we've talked about the obligation. We've talked about the different types of securities. Let's talk about foreclosing on the security. And things that we want to talk about here are the borrower's rights um, before foreclosure, uh, how judicial foreclosure works, how non-judicial foreclosure works, the results, and then any priority rules or ordering orders that might matter. So as far as borrower's, borrower's rights uh, before uh, foreclosure, they can avoid foreclosure in two ways. Uh, first, if they make up the missed payment before acceleration, uh, most mortgages have immediate acceleration contracts, uh, but some don't. And acceleration is just simply the bank asking for the full amount of the mortgage immediately. Uh, so the buyer, borrower can make up the missed payment before that acceleration occurs. The second recovery or right for the borrower is that they can buy back the entire debt anytime before the foreclosure occurs. And this is called an equitable redemption. Obviously, the equitable redemption is not an option in most situations just because, well, if you have $185,000 left on your loan, you miss a payment, it's going to be really hard to get the money 
to pay back that $185,000 before foreclosure happens. So judicial foreclosure is just foreclosure through the judicial system. Most uh, foreclosures don't happen this way, but the way that this works is a complaint is going to be filed by the lender and an answer is going to be made, but usually the borrower doesn't um, make an answer. The answer is going to be provided by the borrower, and then there's going to be a judgment authorizing foreclosure by the judicial system. At that point, the borrower is going to be notified of a time and place where the property will be sell- sold. An auction is going to be held for the sale of the property in a public place, typically at the steps of a courthouse. And then that's going to go to the highest bidder. Usually the bank or the lender is the highest bidder uh, because they're just trying to mitigate any damages that they may have. At that point, the judge is going to confirm the sale. Non-judicial foreclosure is very simple, very similar process, but without judicial oversight. Judicial oversight does become involved, though, if the party who, if the borrower feels that their rights are being violated, mainly if the auction wasn't done in a public place or if the um, bidding price was deeply unfair, uh, meaning the bank would have gotten a huge discount on the property. So let's talk about some of the results before foreclosure occurs. Uh, Sorry, not before, but of foreclosure. What happens after foreclosure happens? Well, it is important to note that there can be several interests at once on a home, and this includes multiple securities or mortgages. And when there are multiple mortgages, there are two main principles that happen when the home is foreclosed. First, Foreclosure is going to eliminate the mortgage by, uh, of the lender that originally forecloses and any lesser interests. So a good example of this is we're going to assume that there are three mortgages, M, standing for mortgage, M1, M2, and M3. And we'll say that M1, M2, and M3 are each recorded in order of priority. M1 is recorded first, M2, and then M3. If M1 is going to foreclose, then all three mortgages are going to be cleared. So mortgage one is gone, mortgage two and mortgage three, each being lesser mortgages in, because they have a lesser interest than M1, those are going to be cleared with M1's foreclosure. But if M2 forecloses and M1 doesn't foreclose, it's going to wipe out only M2's and M3's mortgage, but M1's mortgage is still going to remain. And the whole point of this is you have notice of previous mortgages, you're taking the risk, and so any lesser interest ultimately offer less money as a mortgage. You do not want three mortgages on your home. That would just be a really bad idea altogether and generally. The second rule is that foreclosure sales, uh, those proceeds are going to be distributed first to the foreclosing lender and then to any lender of lesser interest and then to the borrower. A big point of this is focusing on the priority. Uh, You want to focus on the priority 
because the other ones have less notice. So in the situation where we have M1, M2, M3, if M1 forecloses on the cell, all the proceeds are going to first cover M1, and then they're going to cover M2, and then they're going to cover M3, and then they're going to cover the borrower. If M1 is covered and M2 is covered, but there's not enough money to pay back M3, well then M3's mortgage is still cleared, but they don't get any money. And so that's the risk that M3 will ultimately be having and M2 will ultimately be having if that is the situation. Again, if M2 is going to foreclose, then the proceeds are going to cover M2, M3, and then the borrower. That money won't go to M1 at that point until, and then M1 will ultimately have to absorb the risk. How do you know which party is going to foreclose first, whether it's M1, M2, or M3? It's just who the borrower chooses not to default first. Well, chooses to default. If borrower stops paying on mortgage three, well, then mortgage three is going to foreclose. A couple of special priority rules, there are three. The first is a priority rule for a purchase money mortgage. And when I say special priority rules, we're talking about who gets the money first. For purchase money mortgages, those are the mortgages we've been talking about. Whether those are recorded or not, a purchase money mortgage is going to have priority over other mortgages, liens, or liens that are going to arise prior to the mortgager's acquisition of the title, uh, but the property is going to be subject to being defeated by subsequent mortgages under the recording acts. Uh, so a purchase money mortgage, sorry, and so that's the rule. I won't elaborate too much. Uh, mostly just because it's a little confusing to me. A future advanced mortgage is if the lender is obligated to make additional loans, then the new loan is going to take priority from the date of the original mortgage. So this is another clause that are typically involved in purchase money mortgages. Uh, and often those say the lender is free to give more money, but they don't have to, or they may have to, and if they do have to, well, then that new loan is going to take priority from the date of the original mortgage. And then our third special priority rule is a deed in lieu of a foreclosure. Uh, this conveys title to the lender instead of going through foreclosure. And so any junior interests are going to are not going to be terminated, and the lender is going to take title subject to those junior interests. Finally, we've got our rights after foreclosure. Uh, and talking about protections that the borrower has, the borrower's right, and then the um, lender's rights. After foreclosure, the borrower has two main rights. They've got a statutory right of redemption. Uh, this is where they can regain title, uh, by purchasing it from the highest bidder within a specified period of time, and this specified period of time is usually a year. Uh, at that point, they'll pay the sales price plus any interest and costs uh, to exercise that right. And ultimately, because there is this right, 
the sell at foreclosure is going to be pretty limited because the buyer could, uh, the original borrower can come in and pretty much just purchase home, repurchase the home. The second right that the borrower has is that they can actually set aside the sell under certain circumstances. This is going to be if the sell occurred at substantially below market value. Uh, so if the home is worth $200,000, it's sold for 20% less than that $200,000, then that may be a reason for to set aside the sell. Other reasons to set aside the sell is if there's a procedural irreg- irregularity, uh, for instance, the lack of notice or failing to and provide notice or discouraging others from bidding. As far as protections that are available to the lender, uh, lenders can receive a deficiency judgment, but these are pretty disfavored. A disf- deficiency judgment is when the sale of the home is less than the amount that was left on the mortgage. And so the lender would go to the bank, well, would go to the court and say, hey, we didn't make our money back from this. Can we have a judgment on these uh, original borrowers? And the court will grant, in that case, a deficiency judgment. But this practice is generally favored, so there are three main limitations to this process. Uh, first is the fair value limitation. Uh, deficiency judgment is only going to be allowed if the property value does not exceed the initial loan amount. So, uh, yeah, I won't do the math there. <laughs> and the second is complete prohibition, uh, where deficiency judgments are not allowed at all. Uh, some jurisdictions do that. And then the third is the judicial approach, where deficiency judgments may be invalidated by a judge uh, because of an inadequate sales price or any unfair process. So that was a lot. I, I did a pretty good job of getting it done within 20 minutes. Uh, we're at about 22.30. Uh, let's go ahead and summarize just briefly, and then I'll let you go. So we've talked about financing, and there are four main things that we talked about. Creating the obligation, uh, which is a promise to pay back the loan. Providing the security, there are four main methods. That's going to be the mortgage, the deed of trust, the installment land contract, and the equitable mortgage. Most of those act as a mortgage acts, and a money purchase mortgage is the main way of how things work. As far as foreclosure goes, uh, borrower has rights before foreclosure. Uh, judicial foreclosure happens, but non-judicial foreclosure, which is the power of sale, most of the time is what happens. That's just written into the mortgage. And then as far as results go, we've got priority rules, who gets paid back first, uh, there's priority rules for purchase money mortgage. There's priority rules for future advanced mortgages and any deeds in lieu of foreclosure. As far as rights after foreclosure, uh, the borrower can has a statutory right of redemption or they can set aside the sale. And then the lender has deficiency judgments, but once again, those deficiency judgments are often... Um, what's the good word for it? Restricted or limited. Have a good one. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Law Schoolers. Before I let you go, there are four things I want to say. The first thing is if you enjoyed these episodes and if you enjoyed the website, I would invite you to go and join Law Schoolers Pro. And you can do that by going to lawschoolers.com slash join. It's a way for you to support us, but there's also a lot of features there that I think you will enjoy. Second thing is that nearly all of our episodes are unedited. The only ones that aren't are pre-law materials. And the reason for that is so you can actually see the legal material in its raw form as I'm learning it as well. The third thing is that the information contained in these episodes are specifically only for educational purposes. They're not to be used as legal advice. And with that, the fourth thing is if it is used as legal advice, we are not liable. That is, law schoolers is not liable for any legal outcomes. Thank you again for enjoying the show. Have a good one.